Most people think that like, oh, I'm just going to do my slice until, you know, I get promoted and then I'll do more. I did a, a tweet thread on managing up and why your boss is tired of managing you, that you need to manage up. And if you manage up, you will get more responsibility. You will get advancement. You will get, you know, more interesting projects. You'll get more trust from your manager. Welcome to Behind the Thread, the podcast where we interview your favorite content creators on Twitter so you can learn more about the person behind the tweets. So I just wrapped up editing this episode with Wes Cow. She's the co-founder of Maven, the first education platform exclusively for cohort-based courses. They raised a $20 million Series A round last year. Before that, she worked on the Alt-MBA with the legendary, iconic marketer Seth Godin. She has over 130,000 followers on Twitter, sharing her point of view on how to level up in your career, in marketing, and really just in life in general. Before we get into the episode, one thing I have really come to respect about Wes is that everything she writes about, she has experienced it firsthand, and it shines through when you actually read her writing. She's very relatable, her tips are incredibly actionable. You will definitely leave this episode with a few nuggets that you can apply in your life. Anyway, I'm not going to talk anymore. Welcome to Behind the Thread. This is episode eight with Wes Cow. Let's get into it. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, Caleb. <laughs> I'm super excited for this one. Okay, so let's get, let's get right into it. Wes, would you mind just opening up with maybe a one minute elevator pitch on who you are, like what you're working on? For sure. I am the co-founder of Maven. We're a new startup that is making it really easy for creators and subject matter experts to make a living teaching online. So usually when you think of online courses, you might think of pre-recorded videos on Udemy or LinkedIn Learning, and there's no community. You're doing it all by yourself. The completion rates are super low, 6 to 10%. And a recent MIT study said 3 to 6% completion. So a bunch of people start these courses and a very small percentage of people actually finish. So what Maven is doing is we are offering a new type of course called a cohort-based course. So core-based courses have a set start and end date. It's interactive. It's all about active learning versus just passive content consumption. So, you know, over the course of three days or a week or three weeks, six weeks, you're learning with a fellow cohort of other students and you're applying what you're learning. You're doing role-playing, discussion, projects. It's much more in tune with how people actually learn. And the student outcomes are much better. It's, it's, it's a 75% completion rate is what we're seeing across the board for Maven courses. At the Alt-MBA, which I co-founded with Seth Godin five, six years ago, our completion rate was 96%. So it's much better for students. It's much better for creators as well. We were backed by Andreessen Horowitz and First Round, and we're pretty excited to continue building for creators. Okay, take it back to like the beginning of your career and give people kind of the journey to get to this point. And then we can also speak about Maven because I think it's an awesome company. So I think there's a lot of... I definitely know from my experience, there's a lot of college kids and you're studying something, but you're not exactly sure what you want to do. I think you took a marketing kind of path. What inspired you to do that? What was the, the reasoning behind that? Yeah, I got started early thinking about my career. In high school, I was already you know, thinking about what do I want to do? How do I be vice president by the time I'm 40? And just like all these huge career ambitions, that all changed, by the way. 
spoiler, as, as time went on and, and, and I actually started working. But yeah, I started thinking about my career pretty early. I think one of the, the big things that changed the, the trajectory of my career was when I was 16 in high school, I started a nonprofit organization, a charity that donated backpacks and school supplies to underprivileged kids in foster shelters, family resource centers, domestic violence shelters. And before that, I had never really planned anything bigger than my own birthday party. And even that was like, you know, hit or miss. And so, so you know, when I had this idea to start this organization, I, I soon realized that it was much harder to execute and actually do than to have this grand idea. And so, you know, the next couple of years was a lot of going door to door to different stores like Walmart, Target, uh, Walgreens, asking for donations of boxes of pencils and pens, erasers, backpacks. And most of the store managers said, you are a kid trying to get free stuff. We are definitely not donating to you. And it kind of made sense when I, when I thought about it because I didn't have any credibility and, you know, I was, I was, you know, trying to do this. And so the turning point was, you know, after the first year of Packs of Love, I, I actually couldn't raise any money that first year. So I ended up dipping into my savings and purchasing the backpacks myself because I had already promised a shelter that I would donate 50 backpacks. And I felt so bad and so embarrassed that, that you know, I was like, okay, I'm just going to buy you guys these backpacks. But the, the thing that I did was after that, I went to a, the local newspapers and I said, like, look at this thing that I'm doing. You know, if you could write about this, this could be, you know, a great story about how, how you know, a teenager is giving back to their community. And it would be great for me to be able to have that credibility to share with future future donors. And so that the local papers wrote about me and I bought, you know, 100 copies and went around to all the same stores again, wrote to all the same companies to ask for a donation and this time when they saw that, they agreed. So I basically did this for the next 5-6 years, gradually getting more and more backpacks, thousands of backpacks for um, kids all over um, the all over California. And, and I learned a lot from that. I learned that the way that you tell a story matters a lot, that your credibility matters, that painting a vision matters, that aligning incentives matters. No one cares about me or what I'm trying to do. They care about how I can help them get to where they want to go. So me talking all about like, oh, here's what I want to do, blah, 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 like that didn't really resonate. But when I went back to the same stores and said, hey, like when your community sees that, that you, you know, Walmart on... Driscoll Avenue or whatever donated to your community, that's going to make you look really good. And don't you want that? Right. And so aligning incentives and selling ideas in a way where the other person gets excited about it is super, super important. And at that time, I didn't know that this was called marketing. But when I realized that this was called marketing, I thought, I cannot think of a better skill to be excellent at than this. And so I decided to study business administration when I went to college. And the first, my first few roles out of school were marketing related. I actually took a little bit of a detour away from marketing, which ended up being really helpful for me eventually leaning back into entrepreneurship and becoming a better marketer. So we can kind of talk about diversifying your skill sets too. But that's how I first got introduced to this idea of marketing and how important it was. That's a great story. I think it's such a great point that you make about thinking from the other person's perspective and how it benefits them. And I think the reason why is even if someone agrees to do something, you want them to be excited. Like even for, for me, right? Even as a podcast host, you want guests to come on and they're excited to, to do an interview because then it's a whole different experience for the audience. It's a win-win for everyone. I think 
sometimes for people that you were 17 or quite early, it's tough to see the benefit that you can provide to the other person. Because you're like, I'm so young, I don't have an incredible track record or this built out resume. Can you kind of, and I read one of your threads on how you ask for things. Can you explain your process of how you even think about your value add and positioning things to people? Yeah, I, this is a great question. I think in any situation, you have a certain, you, you have a certain hand of cards that you're dealt. And just because you're further along in your career and have a track record does not necessarily mean that people are just excited to work with you or do things or like collaborate with you at all, you know? And just because you're young doesn't mean that people aren't excited to collaborate with you. So I think thinking about what the other side wants and how you can help them get there is really important. So even this idea of, of inviting people onto a podcast versus doing a one-on-one -on -one call with them, right? There's so many people who get, so many founders, so many entrepreneurs, execs who get pitched from eager beavers who say like, hey, like, can I pitch your brain for 15 minutes? Or can I pitch this to you? Or can I ask you for advice? And if you think about it from the, the perspective of your recipient, that person is probably getting pitched dozens of times per day. They have a lot of, a lot going on, right? They're running a business or they're, you know, they're growing their brand. They're doing a lot and, and carving out 15 minutes or 30 minutes is actually a really big deal. So, you know, for, for the, the asker, it's like, oh, come on, it's 30 minutes. Like that's, that's, you know, what's the opportunity cost there, right? But for someone who's really busy, that 30 minutes is a, a, a pretty precious chunk of time. So when you think from that perspective and you think, okay, what can I do that might get this person to want to chat with me? Well, if I offer you a, a podcast episode where they can share their insights and learnings with a broader group of people and, and it's going to be recorded and you know more people can benefit from whatever advice that they're sharing, that's more highly leveraged for them. Right. So that's an example where you don't have to have any pre-existing background, right? Anyone can either ask for a 30-minute call or say, I'd love to record a podcast with you for 30 minutes. You know? And then so once you even secured that person, instead of just uh showing up and having them show up and kind of like not know what's going on, you can send them a rough idea of here's what I want to cover. Here's what I'm excited about to chat with you about. Right. So that gets them excited. It shows that you've done your research. It shows that there are interesting, juicy questions that you want to get into. Uh, and it helps prepare them to come on the show and be able to talk about those things. So that's another way that you're adding value. So again, now let's say two people were doing the podcast. One person, you know, didn't do any prep, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't prepare their, their interviewee. And then the other, like you, sent over some questions of like, hey, I'd love to dive into these things. I thought that part of your career was really interesting. Or, you know, do you have thoughts to share with our audience about this thing? So again, didn't take any prior connections, track record or anything. This is purely thinking about how can I add value to this other person? How can I make their life easier? How can I make this a better, more rewarding experience for them? And you really want to think at the end of doing this with me, will the person think this was a good idea? And if, if I had the chance to do it again, I would, right? Or are they going to think like, ooh, kind of regret that. Like, kind of wish I hadn't done that, right? Yeah. So you really want to aim for if the person knew what they know now, would they want to do it again? Would they want to engage with me again? And the answer should be a resounding yes. I think one of the things that I even keyed in on what you were saying is the value of preparation, which is preparing for the opportunity. And I think that's something that you can do regardless of your age. You don't need a bunch of skills in order to research someone, in order to know their background. 
And I think I've realized that first impressions are so important that if you can show you've done the work up front, it's so critical. Yeah, I, I want to add that I even do that preparation now. So this is now, I'm going to date myself, but 20 years after when I started my <laughs> charity in, in high school, I still do that same amount of preparation with people that I'm meeting because I don't want to waste their time. Whether it's a candidate that I'm interviewing for a role on my team or uh, someone who I'm asking for advice or an investor that I want to get their input or uh, a creator that I'm meeting with who's on Maven's platform, I am doing that same level of preparation. So I have one quick story. I recently reached out to a couple non-CEO, non-technical co-founders, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but you know, within startups, there's, you know, you, there's usually the technical co-founder, right? And then there's the CEO. And sometimes there's, there's the non-technical, non-CEO co-founder, which is the role that I'm in with my, my three co-founders. And so I recently reached out to the, one of the co-founders of Instacart, you know, huge company, you know, multiple steps ahead of where we are at Maven. He was also the non-CEO, non-technical co-founder. And his name is Max, Max Mullen. And before meeting with Max, I sent him an email that outlined, here's what I'd love to chat about when we talk. And I outlined the different struggles that I was going through. I outlined specific questions that I had, specific decisions that I was trying to make, specific parts of, of his background that I wanted to, to get his insight on, on how, how did he make similar decisions when he was in, in our stage. So all of this was helpful because it showed that I'm not going to just show up and waste your time, Max, by you know asking random questions or you know kind of just adding a ton of backstory. I, we can dive straight in because I sent you this context in advance. So he doesn't have to read it all, but even the act of sending that context in advance and saying, here are five bullets of things that I want to talk about shows that I'm coming prepared. So this was literally like six months ago, right? Or less over the holidays, I think. And so, so this idea of preparation is usually not very glamorous. And I think it's such a great point because we've had a, like a few like really great guests on the podcast that have like successful ventures or businesses that they're doing. And I think the thing that they value the most, I've realized is time. So, and, and I think you, you said this earlier, which is to even jump on a call for 15 minutes or half an hour, there's actually a huge opportunity cost for them, like for their time. So I think the fact that you just show that this time is going to be used effectively, like I have a plan. It's not just a general chit chat. It's a great point and a, a big learning for a lot of people. Okay. The thing I wanted to move on to next is I think one thing I find really interesting, like even speaking with you and then also just reading like you're writing online and on Twitter, is that you kind of have like a framework or a way of thinking, it seems, for like every situation. And it's very precise. It's like, okay, it starts here. You know, this is why you should do what you're doing. Here are the steps. And this is why it works. Can you kind of just, how did that start? Like when you, when you had just, even with the charity and things like that, when you were just starting out, have you always been that? Or is that something that kind of developed and a lot of experience went into that? Can you can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, I love sharing mental models and frameworks that I found helpful in my own work. And uh, a lot of what I've shared recently on Twitter are literally things that I remind myself of on a weekly basis. And so tapping into that and being able to share that is is really something that I'm excited about. And the thing is. Those frameworks were developed over the past 15 years. So, so, you know, 
On a weekly basis, it looks like I'm just coming up with frameworks, but that's, that's not true. I've been writing my blog for the last 10 years, my newsletter and blog. So actually, I've been taking one article, one essay per week and basically turning it into a tweet thread. Okay. So with those initial essays, though, some of them, the frameworks that went into them took years, like brand versus performance marketing. The, the brand versus performance marketing spectrum that I created, which says that there's a trade-off between short-term gains and long-term brand equity. So you can do spammy things in the short run, give a lot of discounts, use urgency and FOMO and get people to buy. But that also makes you look spammy, which, which long-term makes you look worse. And you know if you're investing in long-term branding, it's the idea that those returns are not going to turn around right away. So Cartier putting a billboard in Times Square, they are not expecting you to run to the local Cartier store and get yourself a watch or, you know, or a bracelet. They're expecting that when you are ready to invest in a fine piece of jewelry or, you know, watch that you're going to think of Cartier, right? So there's a longer, longer return. It might be a decade before you purchase something from Cartier. So this idea had been an amorphous kind of nagging feeling and struggle, I would say, with balancing these two things for years with multiple organizations that I worked in, with multiple clients that I worked in, where I didn't have the language to talk about that trade-off. And there were sometimes misunderstandings with, ex with expectations, even among the team, where some people were like, we should do a bunch of and they didn't even use this terminology, but they, but they were basically putting, you know, choosing things in this bucket. We should do a bunch of direct marketing because we need those short-term sales, right? We need to drive growth right away. And other people would be in the, the brand bucket of like, let's build this brand. Let's make this brand something people really want to be associated with and not, not do anything short-term and, and kitschy, you know, that, that makes us look bad, you know? So I didn't have the language to talk about that trade-off throughout all those. And it finally came to me and, and I wrote an article about it. So when I was able to put it into words, it was so helpful for me to be able to now have this conversation with my team, yeah. with my colleagues to say, all right, are we prioritizing brand or, or direct marketing or uh, performance marketing? And how do we, how do we balance both? Right. Cause I think the ultimate, the ultimate takeaway of, of the spectrum is that you really need to balance and having that vocabulary was, was, was so helpful to be able to make decisions more thoughtfully on the ground floor. So something like that took years to come up with. And then others, it'll be, you know, a phrase that I say. So stop right before you get eaten by the bear. The idea that, you know, you should cut out as much backstory as possible. So that framework is all about backstory scope creep. So often, you know, you hop on a 30-minute call and people spend 20, 25 minutes sharing their background, sharing the backstory. Okay, for context, let me tell you this and this. And you realize at the end, you have five minutes to actually give them advice. Or on the other side, to actually receive advice from someone who you had just, you know, spent way too much backstory with. And so the idea here is with that phrase, start right before you get eaten by the bear, is if you are telling a story about how you went camping, don't start the story and spend so much time on going to REI to get, you know, the right, the right sleeping bags and then booking <laughs> the campsite and the logistical problems with the payment page and then needing to rent a car and all the stuff. And the, you know, and the, and you went to the rest stop along the way. And then 30 minutes into your story, you talk about how your friend Jeff left a cliff bar outside and you all almost got mauled by bears at 3am, right? Like that is a juicy part of the story. Start right before that part. So for myself, before I hop on calls with people, I think, all right, start right before you get eaten by the bear. And that always reminds me that, that people need less backstory than I might think. And I want to make sure that 
you know, if you finally get that call with someone that you are really excited to talk to, don't don't throw away that time on useless backstory. So these are a couple couple frameworks where, you know, sometimes it takes a long time to come up with it. Other times it's like I might say it out loud and be like, oh, like that's actually pretty good. I should write about it. I should share that with other people in case it's helpful. You know, so when I when I read your writing and I read your threads, I think the thing that really comes through, and I said this to you even before we started recording, is everything is so actionable. And I think when people can make things very actionable, it's because they've experienced all of these things themselves. So, and, and to be honest, when you described it, it really came through, which is like, I was having all of these problems. So I know exactly what is happening on your end, right? So, and I think the reason it's so powerful as well, because it comes through very genuine and authentic in the writing. I'm kind of just interested, maybe a story of what's a really maybe tough piece of feedback or just something in your career that happened that was like, it was like a body blow. Like I think we've all had kind of moments like that. And then can you kind of just speak about, first of all, that moment and what it was, and then kind of how, what it inspired you to do, the changes that you made coming out of it? Great question. So Maven's culture is all about very direct feedback. Feedback that would that would probably like make some people, you know, cringe or something usually, but our culture is very, very direct. So I have a lot of examples from, from you know, recently, but actually when you ask that, I thought of two examples of really early in my, so I want to share those because I, I think it, it shares how something that you're initially not good at could actually be something that you end up being quite good at. So one of them is about being detail-oriented. Most people uh, who have worked with me would say that I am incredible. I have an incredibly sharp eye for pointing out all the things that are wrong with something, for, for better or for worse. But this level of attention to detail was was not something that I was naturally good at before, and that's very surprising for people to hear because they, you know, that's now one of I think my biggest strengths is being able to see with uh, more clarity and see with more nuance and see things that other people might miss upon a first pass. And so, so you know, early on in school, I forgot assignments very often. I would like just forget to do certain homework assignments. I'd write it down in like one of five notebooks and just like not do it. And just, yeah, like being organized wasn't necessarily something that I was really good at. And and noticing details wasn't either. And I remember in, in an internship, I think my sophomore year of college, I worked at uh, a PR firm that had Hitachi, Facebook, Blu-ray as clients. And I remember one of the more senior people asked me to clean up a spreadsheet. It put together like a, a media list or something in 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 Microsoft. I was going to say Google Sheets, but that didn't exist back then. What is this spreadsheet software? Microsoft's, you know, whatever, Excel. a spreadsheet. Excel. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Excel. Yes. He gave me an Excel sheet and asked me to format it. And I did. And then I gave it back to him. And he was like, this is not formatted. Like, this is crap. This is so bad for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like, you didn't even, you like... All the column widths are like weird, you know, weird widths. The headers have like different font sizes in them. Like random shit is bolded. Like what is this mess basically? And I remember being so shocked and so hurt. Like I was like, oh my God, like I really tried. Like I thought I had cleaned up the spreadsheet and I had missed like all this other stuff that he saw that I just didn't. Like I was not trying to like, you know, not do a good job. Like I actually thought that I tried to do a job. And when he pointed all those things out, I realized how surface level I was seeing that piece of work that he had gave me, given me. And it, it was the first time that someone had pointed out that I had missed all of these different details. And, um, and I think he, he was actually 
pretty mean about it. So I think like, you know, if I were giving that feedback, I'd probably, I'd be direct, but, but maybe, you know, less mean about it. But I actually am kind of glad that he was mean about it because it was, it, it was so, it made such a lasting impact on me that I, I, I made a resolution to never do something like that again, to never give someone, you know, something, if they had asked me to clean it up, to never give something back that was, that was just like barely cleaned up and just still very, very messy. And I continued to work on that over the years. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think one of my biggest strengths now is my ability to notice details. Um, I think that too many people are about the big picture, about like this random, it's like grand vision. And like everyone agrees on the, the big vision, the big strategy, and you actually try to do it. And if you, if you give 50 people the same prompt, you will get 50, a range, a bell curve of quality on the 50 ways that it was executed. And, and you want to be in the top 5% of how it was executed. And how do you execute well? You notice details. You think about executing decisions with good judgment. You think about all the micro decisions, the hundreds of micro decisions that go into something that people don't even think about. When you give them the final result, they're just like, wow, this looks really good. Like they don't even think about all the different things you thought about as you were creating this thing, whether the thing is an email or, you know, a, a proposal or a slide deck or whatever that final thing is. There are so many micro decisions that go into designing it and then executing it. Even a LinkedIn message to someone or a, tw a tweet, DM, like those things require craft, right? So thinking about the craft and the attention to detail that goes into something, I think is huge and, and would level up the competence of the average person if, if we all just thought about that more. So that was, was kind of the, a formative moment for me that kicked me off on this this lifelong journey, this career-long journey, I would say, of caring about competence and about details and about good judgment and execution. And I, I jokingly say that, that you know, if I were to be a fairy, you know, there's a tooth fairy and like, you know, whatever fairy, I would be the competence fairy, okay? Because I care so much about people being more competent and, and how it would make your life better if you're more competent and everyone who you work with, their lives would be better too if we were all just a little bit more competent. Okay, cool. Okay, no, that's a... Uh... That's a great story. And I think the interesting thing, I actually have a very, maybe not as harsh as what the guy said to you, but I have a very similar story of when I started first working in consulting. And I think anyone that's worked in strategy consulting knows it's very detail orientated. Like, you know, your slides, everything needs to be perfectly aligned. The words need to be capitalized. Everything needs to be perfect. And I remember giving back a slide and having a very similar experience uh, to you where like, the consultant I was working with pointed out like 20 different things that were just off. And I think one of the things that was, that he told me afterwards is that like, you want to be the guy that's like five steps ahead of everyone else. Like you want to have all the, the steps and all the, you've want to already have thought about different scenarios and different things that can happen. And if this happens, this is what we're going to do. And like you want to be that person on the team that's just more prepared than anyone else. I think one thing I'm really interested to hear from you, because you said you're kind of, you're very detail orientated. Who is like, what are the characteristics of like a superstar, like colleague, employee that works with you? What is it that they do that you're like, I love having that guy or that girl, like I love having them on the team. Can you kind of describe that? Yeah. I, I first I love what you said about what your your colleague said about being the person who's five steps ahead, who is thinking about all these different scenarios. I call that rigorous thinking. That instead of just making decisions on the fly without a lot of thought, that 
when you think rigorously, you think about the upside, downside, second order effects and implications of what you might be doing. If, you know, shortening the amount of time in this process here actually creates more work for these three teams. Like, let's not do that, right? So thinking about the big picture and getting into the weeds, that's what I call rigorous thinking. And the the people that I love working with are all rigorous thinkers. They are people who, when they come with an idea, they are not expecting people to just believe them, regardless of what title they have. They are ready to persuade you that this is the right path. And they are ready to, to share data points of, of why their idea might work. And they're, they're thinking a couple steps ahead. So I think that, that idea of the, the rigor that goes into your work is very, very important. You really want to be someone where if, if someone says, oh, Caleb's working on that, the reaction is, oh, cool. I know it'll be taken care of, right? I know it will be taken care of. That is actually really rare. So, so, so usually, you know, when someone hears that, they're like, oh, okay, like we should probably check this or this or like, you know, make sure they have that or, you know, remind them of this. And, you know, like most managers are pretty worried about things like that, actually, because if you're a manager, the people under your team roll up into you. So whatever they do reflects on you. So they are actually the one who's ultimately responsible for any mess ups or any, you know, poor decisions on their team, right? Because they are, they are the leader. It's, it's their responsibility to make, to make sure their team is, is operating well. And so for most managers, it's actually, uh, it's, there's a lot of paranoia involved with like making sure that you need to check certain things before it gets, you know, before it gets bubbled up further, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can be someone where someone knows that if you are working on something, that you are going to exercise rigorous thinking and good judgment, and you're going to, you're going to close the loop. You're going to follow up on the right things. You're not just going to like let something hang on the side. It's kind of like a, a, um, a baton, right? Like a, a relay race where the baton isn't just like sitting on the floor there because you're like, oh, you know what? Oh, I finished my I, I finished my segment of the race. And, you know, I wasn't really sure what to do next. So I just like put the baton over there on the left in the corner over there, you know? No, like the, your part isn't finished until you hand the baton to the next person and they grab it and keep going, right? Like that sense of ownership and responsibility is huge. And I will often tell people who join my team that the ball is always in your court. Just assume the ball is in your court. Like, I don't want to hear that, you know, oh, you know, if I check in on a project and the answer is, oh yeah, I sent that to you in Slack three weeks ago and I didn't hear back. So I just stopped working on it. No, like you need to keep hounding me until you get what you need, right? Just like I hound people until I get what I need. And I'm being, I'm exaggerating, obviously with saying hounding someone like breathing down their neck. But what I mean is it's you, it's you who are responsible for moving the project forward, right? So if I send something to a creator, uh, a Maven instructor, and they're really busy and they haven't gotten back to me. My answer isn't just, oh yeah, I just stopped. You know, they didn't they didn't respond to my last email, so I just was waiting for that and it's been 2 months. No, like 4 days pass, I'm going to give a gentle nudge. I'm going to bump them. I'm going to see like what was it about my note that that they didn't want to respond to? Oh, okay, maybe it was because the the call to action wasn't super clear. Or maybe it was because it looked like a lot of work. Whatever I was asking them to do, they were like, oh, this looks like a lot of work, Wes. Like, I'm not going to really, I'm going to come back to this, right? If someone needs to come back to it, they're probably not going to do it. So how can I reduce the perceived lift of what I'm trying to ask them to do or the actual lift or like reformat something so that they are more, more likely to respond? And I take that on myself as my responsibility to get them to respond. Not like, oh, I sent it and it's just, you know, it's just done. So that sense of rigor, that ownership and uh, accountability is really, really huge. Yeah. 
I think the point I loved about what you said is the mindset of ownership. Because I think especially when you're kind of earlier in your career, it's easy to think, oh, I got given this one task, like my job is done now. But I find like when you really level up is when it's almost as if you have the mindset as if you were the manager, like you're the person that's that's heads on the chopping block. Because then once you have that mindset, you can think through all the different possibilities. And even though you've handled this one thing, there's this other area that isn't handled. Let me go check in on that. So yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's such a great point. I think that the, the, I don't know if ironic is the right word here, but the counterintuitive thing, the counterintuitive thing is that if you put on the manager hat and you think steps ahead and you assume that you are the one responsible for, for more than just your, your small segment of the task, that's when your boss actually wants to give you more responsibility and when you actually get promoted. So most people think that like, oh, I'm just going to do my slice until, you know, I get promoted and then I'll do more. I did a, a tweet thread on managing up and why your boss is tired of managing you, that you need to manage up. And if you manage up, you will get more responsibility. You will get advancement. You will get, you know, more interesting projects. You'll get more trust from your manager. And it actually really, it was more controversial than I thought. Like there were people who were really angry about that. Like they were like, I'm, you know, I shouldn't have to manage my manager. Like they're getting paid to manage me. And, you know, you know, this is unfair in many ways. Like, yeah, it is kind of unfair. Like, yeah, they are getting paid to manage you. But the reality is also like two truths can be, can, can occur at the same time. One is, yes, that's kind of unfair. Like, should you have to do that? Probably not. But the other truth is, if you do that, you will advance further in your career. You will be seen as more of a leader and as more competent and as someone who um, is more deserving of a promotion. So that is that is how it is. And I think embracing that, embracing that, hey, if I want to gain uh, more responsibility and and show how much value I can contribute to an organization, I might need to do some things that are outside, you know, the immediate task of what someone put on my desk. I might need to think about how does this task fit into the broader whole of what our department is trying to do or how, what our company is trying to do. And how can I think a couple steps ahead to think about potential areas of risk and then de-risk those so that my manager isn't kind of the final, the final stopgap of like, you know, the buck stops here. What if the buck stopped with you instead? Yeah. No, that's really, it's really such a, such a great point on like how to get promoted. Okay. I want to switch gears slightly. There was one thing I found it super interesting when you were speaking at the start, you said when you were starting out, even wanting to be like vice president, <laughs> that's kind of, that's funny. What, when did... Obviously, you're like a founder now. You founded several businesses. When did it kind of switch in your journey where you're like, okay, I want to start my own thing? And then also relating to that, can you kind of just speak about old MBA and how you kind of even got into the education space in general? Yeah. So when I look back, my career arc looks like I went from A to B to C to D, (laughs) and it all looks very linear. But let me tell you, in the moment, in, in, at the times when it was all happening, it was not linear at all. There was a hefty dose of serendipity involved and also playing to my strengths. So one of my favorite frameworks is what I call turning bugs into features. And the idea here is that the things that you thought were liabilities or you know negatives, disadvantages, could actually be the things that are that set you apart that are advantages for you. And so in terms of giving up on my dream to be, you know, a VP at a consumer goods company like, you know, P&G, Clorox, etc. by age 40, um 
That all came about because I had a short stint at in brand management marketing at a beauty company. And uh, brand management marketing is usually the path that you that you take to become CMO at a consumer goods company. It's a very structured path. You do you do you know your brand management coordinator, and then you do two years of business school, and then you get promoted to an associate brand manager, and then you know three years after that, brand manager, three years after that, senior brand manager. So it's a very set path. And in the very beginning of that path, when I was in brand management marketing as a coordinator, I realized that I didn't actually like the work. That I liked a, a very specific part: the product development piece, the the creation piece, the figuring out how to how to go to market with new products. But there's there's actually a lot of a lot of analysis and numbers in brand management marketing, and and I didn't I didn't like having to forecast a ton and and think about the lift from certain promotions and whatnot. It's also super detail oriented. That's the other thing. Oh my gosh, it's. <laughs> It's so detailed. There are so many SKUs. So this was at a beauty company where we had multiple shades of multiple products and you multiply that and soon there's literally thousands of SKUs that you have to keep track of. And this was, you know, this was earlier on in my career. So I wasn't quite as good at handling details as I am now. And actually, I would still say that that level of detail, I still don't think that I could I could do that now. Like personality-wise, it's it's just not me. And I also realized recently-ish, actually in adulthood, that I was diagnosed with with ADD. And so it kind of makes sense how, you know, thinking back, needing to, to keep track of all these different details across very important product lines that were in different stages of being launched was was not a good personality fit. And luckily, I learned that early on that I could slog through and try to do this for another 20 years, or I could choose a different path where things come more easily to me and come more naturally to me. And so that that idea of doing things that come naturally for you, I think is a really, really big part of, of the wins that I've had in my career. Almost every win, it was because I gave up on things that that were not enjoyable for me to work on or to learn, you know, and that I didn't feel like I had an unfair advantage with my personality or natural instincts or or orientation or skill set. So, you know, with 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 brand managed marketing, I could have continued to to go in that field and compete with a bunch of people who naturally were very good at at the things that that role required. And it would have just been five units of input equals one unit of output, right? Whereas you want to be in, in, in roles where one unit of input equals three units of output. Mm-hmm. And so that got me thinking about what other functions can I do? What other skills can I develop that I'm naturally better at? And even when it's hard, I actually like solving those problems or actually feel like I have a, a chance at learning this thing. You know, that makes a really, really big difference. So I feel like a lot of points in my career, it was reflecting on what am I naturally good at? What do I like learning? What I like doing? And then, and then doing that. You know, you know, what's interesting. So in the last, I would say maybe year, 18 months, I kind of found out about Naval Ravikant. He's an investor in Maven. Yeah. Invest and yeah. And he also founded AngelList. And one of the things he says is that you want to do things that feel like play to you, but work to others. And it's interesting because like in the last 12 months, I've been like, it's, it's been in my head all the time. Like what feels like play to me? Because we all have certain things. And I think because you're so into it, it does, you don't even, you kind of take it for granted. You don't even realize that it feels like play to you. Like even interviewing people, like doing the podcast, like it's one of those things, it adds energy. Like there's certain tasks and things that you do in your day that you leave, you leave that experience and you're on like cloud nine, like you're pumped. And then there's certain things which are kind of taking energy away from you. 
And it's amazing because like, if you can find that thing for you, it, it feels easy. And, and then it's more difficult for someone to, to replicate it or compete with you because that's like what you were meant to do. I'm kind of interested like with, with ONBA, with Maven, when was, when was like that light bulb moment when you were like, this is what I'm meant to do? Like, was there a certain thing that happened or was it just like a gradual sort of process, uh, like realization? Great question. I don't believe that there are things that you are meant to do. So I will, okay. I will reject the notion of that question, but I'll tell you why. I think that <laughs> okay. people, people find enjoyment doing things that they tend to be good at. So yeah. we tend to do more of the stuff that we're good at because it's, it, it feels more fun. And so there's a certain amount of work that goes into being good at something. So this is the, the so good, be so good they can't ignore you, you know, the, the entire premise of that book from, from Cal Newport, where, you know, instead of following your passion, you should follow craft and skill. So I think that, you know, with, when I look back at, at Alt-MBA, at you know, the charity I started, Packs of Love, at Maven, it wasn't like, oh, this is, this is what I meant to do. It was more about my skill sets and personality are pretty well suited for this, for what, what this project or this company would involve. So thinking about my skill sets and where I can, where I might have a, a unique advantage, a competitive advantage, that's what got me excited about starting the Alt MBA, about starting Maven, and about pretty much anything that I work on. So I think the the takeaway there is to develop your skills and your craft. And I think I think craft is something that is way underrated and overlooked. I don't think enough people today talk about craftsmanship. And what I mean by craftsmanship is the craft that goes into doing whatever. Uh, it is that that you do. So if you if if I'm interviewing candidates, okay, so actually that's a good example because I'm hiring a bunch right now, and there is craft involved in hiring. You know, before you know, if you look at something from the outside, it just seems like it kind of works. You know, you like don't really know how it works. It just kind of works. But the deeper that you dive, the more you realize there are principles involved, and uh, the more you start to pattern match, and the more nuance you see. So with Going into a deep dive with a hiring spree recently, I've really leaned into the craft of hiring, of how to create take-home projects that accurately assess what you think you are assessing. Because it's very easy to create a take-home prompt where you ask the candidate to do a certain project and you realize you're actually measuring the wrong thing, or that the, the level of detail that you gave was wrong, or that you uh, there's something you put in there that, that actually misleads most candidates to think the project should focus on X when you really want them to focus on Y. Or if all the projects are coming back and they're not giving enough signal versus noise, that's also mm -hmm. a sign that the project isn't great, right? Because the whole point of the project is that it should separate candidates clearly into buckets. So if all the projects are coming back and they're kind of good, like that's also a sign that it's not a great project. And there's not a clear answer for what to do. So that's an example where you can just go through the motions and you know keep sending the same prompt to dozens and dozens of candidates as they come in. Or you can think about adjusting your prompt so that it actually gives you what you are looking for. And that takes more thought and more rigor, but that kind of thoughtfulness makes a huge difference. So that that idea of craftsmanship that that there is there is skill that goes into different functions, whether it's hiring or pitching or design or working with coworkers. I think that sense of that pride in craftsmanship is something that we would all benefit from if we thought about more. Okay, awesome. Okay, so just to finish off, I want to talk a bit about Maven, just to give a bit of context to people, actually. So 
I would say about nine months ago, I did Sean Puri's like power writing course on Maven. Like I took the dive, I spent the money and I just did it. And it literally, like it's the first time I've really spent that much doing a course or doing like any sort of education related thing. And it was so like well worth it. Like the value back that I got from that, like even the way that I emailed you, I used what I learned in that course. So it's definitely, it's an amazing experience. And I think it's also one of the first online courses where I've done, like I watched all the episodes, I did all of the the kind of homework that he gives you as well. Can you kind of just speak about Maven? Like what's some of the new things that you're working on? Like what are some of the courses you're excited by? Yeah. I love hearing that, that you had such a great experience with Sean's course. We just wrapped up a cohort, another cohort for Sean. So nice. yeah, it's, nice. it's an amazing course. Yeah. In terms of upcoming courses, there's so, we have over a hundred instructors on Maven's platform now. So, you know, there's a ton of courses on writing, crypto, audience building. There's some creative classes like photography, painting, mindfulness, meditation, what else? Dating, coding on Ethereum, leadership and management, product management. So there's a bunch of different courses. We're releasing more by the week as creators launch. So it's really, really exciting. And I will put a plug in for the Maven Course Accelerator, which is our free three-week core-based course on how to build a course. So if if anyone who's listening is interested in sharing your expertise, teaching online, the course is completely free and we guide you through all the steps from thinking about your positioning and what topic you should teach, what target audience you should teach to, who's your target student, thinking about course market fit. It's kind of like product market fit, super important up front, all the way to designing your curriculum, putting together slide decks, creating project prompts so that your students get a chance to practice and put put their learnings into into action all the way to marketing your course and creating your landing page, tweeting about your course, how to nurture your your leads to, so they convert to students. So we do the whole the whole process. So we have one coming up in April or May. Okay, awesome. And just before we wrap, one thing that I can speak to as well is the power of like the community element. And it's crazy for me because even on the the cohort that I was on, I think like Blake Burge, he was also on it and now he has like a massive Twitter following. I think at the time he had like 5,000 followers on Twitter. I think he now has like 170,000. And it's kind of crazy because you'll, yeah, you'll see a bunch of people from your cohort that like blew up or now they have their own website and they write online or like, and I think it really does also motivate you and also hold you accountable to do all the tasks. So I think that's a really powerful element um, of it. Yeah. The community and accountability is is incredible. That's really the difference between learning something on your own and, you know, reading a bunch of articles yourself, trying to piece it together versus learning with a group of other people who are inspired to be there, who are hungry, who are ready to go. That level of energy is uh, really, really motivating. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Do you want to give them, give the people kind of like where they can find you, your Twitter account, which is like a godsend. Yeah. Yes, I'm kind of at Wes underscore KO on Twitter and WesKO.com for my newsletter. And then Maven, we're at MavenHQ and Maven.com. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Thread. Please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps me grow the pod. Also, let me know who you'd like to see come on the podcast next. I'm Callum. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you on the next one.